You're listening to the Art of Move podcast, hosted by Dr. William Raybar and Anthony Manuel, where we attempt to create a grand unified theory of human movement, biomechanics, and training. If you enjoy these episodes, you can watch them streamed live on nofilter.net, where you can interact directly and have all your questions answered in real time. Four, three, two, one for episode 30 of the Art of Move podcast. My name is Anthony Manuel. I'm here with my good friend, Dr. William Raybar, and we are here in the Canadian Rockies trying to find the truth on human biomechanics and how the body is supposed to move, how we are supposed to orient ourselves to live and move within the human body. And today's episode is gonna cover a few different topics. Uh, we had someone actually reach out on Instagram. My Instagram is at the body moves and Will's is at the art of move. Someone reached out and said, hey, could you guys talk about the Postural Restitution Institute, or Restoration, Restitution, Postural Restoration Institute, and uh, kind of cover some of their topics and how it relates to gait and spinal engine and some of the different training modalities that you've covered, like go to WEC method, functional patterns, etc. cetera. Uh, I'd love to hear what the value you think there is and if you think that there are things that are moving. He followed up saying, so far, my thoughts on it are, it's a good a system for static posture as far as alignment is concerned because it helps demonstrate where most people's asymmetries lie. But I don't think it's as applicable to dynamic movement. It's probably more of a therapy alignment practice. It's also based in linear movement as far as I can see. And that was sort of my take on it when I when I did it too. Um, full transparency, as far as how much I looked into it personally, I watched a webinar I looked at the website. I kind of watched as many YouTube videos as I could do. I looked up if there were any podcasts talking about the work that they did. And so my understanding of it is fairly limited. I took some notes from a a pretty good webinar that sort of sounded like it encapsulated the the bulk of the idea behind it. But when when we were looking into it, Will, how much did you look into it yourself? Um, Not a ton. I'm not an expert on their model. I've maybe put 15 hours total. I've followed a few people who have, I know have done postural restoration Institute work. Um, I would say I'm semi-familiar with it. Um, I'll give it a go. Like I've, I've heard a lot of other concepts and let's get into the concepts. Cause then I can yeah. go one by one and I can't just say postural restoration Institute is good or bad. I have to get into the concepts. Yeah. So I'll, I'll, I'll share my screen cause I took a few notes and I'll just go through the notes that I took quickly. Um, sure. Uh, so, so the few notes that basically the the core concepts that I sort of understood is that there are fundamental differences in the sides of the body, the two hemispheres, the left side and the right side of the body, because of organ placement and differences in the neurological hemispheres. So the two sides of our brains operate differently, and there are the the placement of our organs are different, and they, you know, create different levels of tension. And so our, our structure is actually asymmetri- asymmetrical by nature. Um, things like the right dome of the diaphragm being bigger than the left, it's seated on the liver, it can't uh, descend as low as the left side because the liver is in the way. Um, so the left is a smaller diaphragm, it has a smaller dome, but it can descend and ascend more because it doesn't have organs directly in the way. So our breathing is asymmetrical. Neurologically, we're asymmetrical because we have more motor neurons on the left side of the brain, uh, which kind of is responsible for the right side of the body's movements. So our timing and sequencing in movement 
is favored and better on the right side, and we have naturally better dexterity on the right side of our body. Uh, so, and then people have a natural right side orientation in general, so we tend to sink and, and put our weight into the right leg, and as a compensatory effect, our torsos and our necks will sort of turn and bend to the left uh, because we sort of think into the, the pelvis when we're, we're standing. Um, and that sort of creates some pelvic issues, you know, like we, we have an orientation uh, that basically the natural asymmetries of our bodies mean that the right side of our bodies tend to need more external rotation and abduction and the left side of our our pelvis, the right, right, the left side of our bodies need more internal rotation and adduction. So, uh, you know, on the right side, glute max, posterior gluteus medius, and piriformis tend to be underdeveloped. And on the left side, adductors, uh, anterior gluteus medius, obliques, and hamstrings tend to be less developed. And that's basically that's those are the notes that I sort of took. I, I you know, I took some screenshots of the diagrams of how the uh, the spine and the pelvis tends to uh, orient itself and how it tends to rotate and tilt uh, in response to these sort of um, anatomical asymmetries. But though, that, that was about as far as I got into it. I looked a little bit at their sort of corrective exercises, but I didn't take any notes on it. So right off the get-go, what stands out for you as, you know, kind of making sense and then what for you kind of doesn't sit right? Um, it, there's a lot here, right? Let's start right off the get-go. We have the fundamental differences in the body because of organ placement and neurological hemispheres. Yeah, kind of, but there's also way more symmetry in the body, right? So how much does this apply to actual movement? Um, this isn't telling me anything. It's just telling me that we have, uh, you know, liver on right side and not left side. We have heart on the, you know, the left side, not the right side doesn't tell me anything about the movement. It just says we're kind of asymmetrical. So, I mean, there's not like what there is uh, applicable to movement in your opinion. Well, so, you know, I think, you know, when I was watching the webinar, I have the webinar up so I could kind of scroll through the, sure. the different slides here. Right. Um, and they talk about what sort of um, what these asymmetries in this pelvic tilting and, and the biasing sort of creates in terms of a gate mechanics thing right and so you can you can see like if you have this certain tilt towards the if you have a bias on the left side towards external rotation abduction and, and flexion and the right side is more oriented towards internal rotation adduction and flexion then your your gait your stride is going to be somewhat imbalanced you're not going to have the same sort of gait and then over time that could cause I don't know, maybe joint degeneration. So they, they think about in terms of gait, they think in terms of balance and symmetry. They use, you know, like the, they, they use the example of uh, measuring people on force plates in, uh, you know, but they, they move, they do movement in terms of a squat. So it's like, okay, well, where is their weight on their feet in a squat or their foot placement in a squat? Are they actually symmetrical? And they're looking at bilateral movement to sort of measure the symmetry of of movement in general but but this is this is where i i see the first limitation is if they're measuring everything bilaterally our movement in our gait cycle happens unilaterally right it happens 
you know, from side to side, it's passing this, this, and, we, and we're also using a rotary model of gate as opposed to a linear model of gate, right? So that's, uh, those are some, you know, preliminary thoughts. But my point was, where's the correlation between uh, your asymmetries, like the organ asymmetries and the asymmetries in gate? Because everything you said may be true, but there's right. a million different variables that can get you to that state. So where is the foundation, the thing that was said first about organ placement in the body being asymmetrical and then transferring that into gait? Basically, can you have a symmetrical gait pattern or very close to, even though you have asymmetrical organs? Absolutely, you can. So where's the correlation there? Where's the, the juice that I'm getting into here? Because... I have nothing to say on that except, yeah, the, the organs are placed differently on the body and it may cause a slight, slight uh, deviation of one side or another, but you should still be able to get in the bow. You should still be able to do the corner. You should still be able to get 22-5 with your knee, uh, chest pointed out. You should still be able to get in the bow. You should still be able to land on your fourth and fifth. None of this stuff makes a difference. You should still be able to move your spinal engine. So, I mean... Yeah, everything they're saying is true here, but I just don't see how it correlates to actual movement as much right. as to the level that you said afterwards. You know, and, and symmetry, I think, is is a fundamentally important thing to consider. You know, like there is symmetry in the body naturally. Um, this person who messaged us specifically asked, you know, is there is there any use in terms of movement systems like GOTA or WEC method or the other ones that you covered? Can you integrate this idea into spinal engine, you know, the only thing that I hear them talking about the spine is like, for example, the in the diaphragm work, the left, uh, or sorry, the right dome in the, in the diaphragm has more leverage on the interior spine. So would the size of the diaphragm uh, from side to side affect your ability to wave and undulate your spine? I don't think so. I, I think it would have such a minute or minimal effect necessarily in terms of breath work and all this stuff. Like this is, this is a, uh, a big so what for me as well exactly. i don't really i don't have i don't see the core like like you said i don't see the correlation between the ace the asymmetry of the diaphragm in relation to the spinal engine and like you and and even just in my own experiences of dealing with asymmetries um i've just been doing the same work on both sides of my body and and getting into proper posture and everything and i do have an asymmetry where my right hip has a natural tendency to externally rotate more um and i you know i have i have more tightness like i do have asymmetries but they're sort of resolving themselves the more that i just focus on patterning in quality gate mechanics based on the principles that we've kind of covered you know a lot of the go to principles of setting a bow learning to corner it getting deep into your hip when you're do when you're setting a bow unilaterally like these things are are kind of resolving themselves well, let's move on to the, the sort of the the next portion here. If if you think, do you, do you think there's any relevancy to brain asymmetry in movement? No, um, <laughs> I don't. I don't buy a lot of this stuff. Um, okay, certain behaviors may come from one side of the brain um, and the other, but they're fairly They're fairly symmetrical in their actual orientation. I'm not so sure where they're getting this. Um, this asymmetry in the brain, it's its driving different behaviors. Yes, I get that, but the actual weight distribution is different. So, um, and coming out of the spinal cord, they're both the same on both sides. Yeah, 
different parts of your brain will light up different parts of your body. Left side works with right side and vice versa. But I don't see how that stops me from getting in a bow, doing a corner, uh, you know, using the spinal engine, having very symmetrical movement from side to side. And I actually approach movement like that. I'd like to have symmetry, right? Mm-hmm. I just don't think that these variables mentioned, like the diaphragm, the brain having different functions, um, the liver being on one side, I, I don't think it makes much of a difference. It's one of those things that uh, causation versus correlation, right? Like if you go back to that diaphragm before, the right side is going to be more heavily built. There might be more fascia on the right side, more of a fascial connection into your psoas. So it may pull a little bit more, may make you rotate your pelvis a little bit more. And if you've been doing this your whole life, maybe there is a correlation there. However, that is the, that's an observation, not what to do about it. And it's not that important because you can overcome this very easily. Right. And and so, you know, what the message that I got said basically, hey, I think the biggest relevance for this is probably just dealing with asymmetries in standing posture. And if you look, this is their, they, they have, they say the normal human orientation is, you know, is, is with your weight sunk into your, into your right. And then you have, you know, this, this left interior, uh, or sorry, left interior, interior chain. So the, the diaphragm, psoas iliacus, tensor fascia lata, biceps femoris, your hamstring, your vastus lateralis, that that will start to kind of like rotate in and start to compress itself a little bit based on, or sorry, well, yeah, will compress itself and that'll create a structural imbalance biasing you are almost spiraling you in towards the right and creating, you know, creating this pelvic tilt and this, this standing asymmetry, right? So will, will these asymmetries show up in your gait? Yeah, probably. And like you said, if you're, if you, if you have done this your entire life, then there will be, uh, you know, issues with it now, or, 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 you know, like, but the question is, how do you address, well, so what it's, um, this is, this is the question, right? So what? is they, they actually answer this, this question in, in, the, um, in the webinar here. It's like the right pelvis is better at accepting more weight and being strong, AKA loading, causing weight shift in bilateral lower body exercises because we can't quote, get in our right hip easier. And the left pelvis is better at pushing off. So propulsion causing more people to prefer jumping off of that side because we can push out the left hip easier. So we have like better, um, you know, internal rotation on that left side, that, that propulsive uh, mechanic of gait. Um, and so the right pelvis is going to have a harder time getting in to the hip. Right. And I will say like, that is my imbalance. Hey, like I can't get into my right hip as easily. Even when I sent, I did a slow motion video of myself running probably like six or eight months ago. And I tagged uh, coach Gill from the go to movement. And he was like, Hey, your right hip still needs to get open. Right. And it was, so looking at that, if, if the right pelvis is better accepting more weight, but you can't get into our right hippies, do you think that would affect gator movement? Yeah. So everything here I'm seeing is uh, it observation and correlation, not causation. So basically, uh, can you go back to that previous slide where the guy had the, um, what was happening with the standing structure of most people? Mm-hmm. Okay. So I actually see a lot of this, right? So I see... A lot of counter rotation at the torso. I see the neck bending a little bit. I see the pelvis moving 
towards the right, okay? Like coming, if you're standing there, your pelvis will be pushed forward to the left and back to the right a little bit. And I see this a lot with right-handed people, right? So, I mean, yeah, this is, this is a thing, right? It absolutely is a thing. However, what to do about it? Um, from what I see about their exercises and how they parse out uh, the body parts, it's very cadaver based, very linear based, very um, this muscle should fire with this muscle. If we lay down and have them sensory fire together, have them fire together, wire together in different pelvic orientations, then they should do it in gait. I don't buy that. Right. Um, why not just do the bow and corner and, you know, do, do go to checklist is so much easier than this. It's just, this is complicating things and bringing it back to a linear, um, concept, right? This, this is almost like a hybrid between linear cadaver science and movement, except yeah. it, they're, they're noticing things in static postures that may be true. However, they're, uh, correctives for movement. I wouldn't say is what I would do. There's a right. way better way to do it. Yeah. And, and so they're, they're throwing all these isolated, uh, corrective exercises like I, I think their idea that the human body is naturally asymmetrical is like it's obvious, right? Like like you said, you do see those that that like dumping into the one side of the weight quite a bit. Um, you can just observe human beings; they do have a nat like even animals t uh, tend to favor one side. Like asymmetry is almost universal in nature. Symmetry is universal in nature as well. But there is you know like as asymmetry is natural to the to the human animal right so i think that is they do have something there and they you know obviously if you if you favor one side over time then structural and neurological adaptations occur like that's just that's that's obvious now i think the the thing that you're saying is in terms of the actual intervention of it the some of the breathing exercises um some of the you know oh well again it looks like they have a lot of lifting based interventions and a lot of linear movement based interventions um, to address these imbalances, uh, you know, for example, they'll isolate an internal rotation and then do a, a hip hinge so that they can quote, get into the hip more. Now you do that or you do, or you set a bow, you know, go to style. Like you said, you hit that go to checklist and you spiral into the, the hip and you're opening up your hip and you're getting that internal and external rotation of your, of, of both hips. And when you're setting the bow and you're setting the corner, foot to foot, then you're, you're getting all this work. Anyway, you're basically, you're, you're treating the problem by moving correctly. And I think this is the, this is the question. It's like, do you need all of these corrective exercises and to work each part of the chain one by one in isolation? Um, you actually, you saved a clip from this webinar too. And, and I wanted you to kind of play it back and, and, and we could kind of break it down because he talks about this idea of, um, you know, purposeful activation exercises based on the the gait cycle. And I wanted to talk about that a little bit. Could you play that back? Yeah, I will. Um, I just wanted to say that throughout the time I've been watching, again, maybe 15, 20 hours worth of, you know, PRI stuff, um, I agree with most of it. There's like 80%. I'm like, yeah, that, that makes sense. That makes sense. But when it comes to the interventions, when it comes to the importance of asymmetries. I'm, I'm not in agreement there, right? And they have a couple concepts that they don't mention the bow ever. They don't mention spinal engine. They don't mention front chain dominance versus back chain dominance. And when that's the case, it's like, 
how could you have all this complicated, you know, uh, motions at the pelvis that you're saying is going on and all these um, compensatory patterns that are, you know, uh, correlations, but you don't address front chain dominance versus back chain dominance. It's like that right. is the lowest hanging fruit. And if you don't, if you don't address that, it's very hard to do anything else. Like I used to do side view assessment. That is the hottest thing right now. Every chiro, every physio, if, if someone's telling you they're doing uh, front view assessment and, you know, full running assessments, it's not that common. Okay. Mm. It's all side view and it's all anterior, posterior, tilt of the pelvis. These guys have introduced rotations at the pelvis from pulling muscles. Okay. Which is true. However, again, we're going back to, is this applicable in motion? What is the solution? Is the solution to do isolated uh, linear cadaver exercises or is it to get stop the bleeding get in the right angles and the right math in pressure wave pressure waves key right it's not a linear model it's all the way from the foot to the spinal engine okay so i don't hear anything about the spinal engine i don't hear anything about the bone corner i don't hear anything in that uh regard and i'll play that clip and again i i uh agree with 80 percent of what they're saying so i'm just gonna play it here and then orient that skeleton in a way where the muscles are going to be able to work in the orientations we want them to work in. And we can do that by respecting gait references. So when my heel strikes the ground, my hamstring should kick on. So maybe instead of doing prone hamstring curls, I could do something where I'm making a neurological association between my heel, a posterior pelvic tilt, which is what happens when your heel strikes the ground, concentric hamstring activity, left abs maybe, and then heel reference. So that my brain is trained that when my heel strikes the ground, I'm going to get those things. Because with hamstring curls, there's no reference. You're just doing hamstring curls. So none of that is ultimately going to matter if we can't breathe through it correctly. Yeah, so that's a great summary. Eh? It had a lot of things in there. Let's start with uh, with heel hitting the ground. I don't even agree there that that's what we should be yeah. going for. However, a lot of people do it. Most people do it. So is he correct about that? Maybe. What were your thoughts? Well, so my thoughts were, you know, one of the things that he's talking about is activating your hamstring for like with a hamstring curl as as part of this, you know, to 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 activate this this part of the chain in isolation from the other parts, the other parts of the chain that that are responsible for this gate mechanic is erroneous, right? And I agree with that. Now, the, the question is, do you need to get all complicated and do like, you know, like internally rotate your back leg and then load it with like a, a, a thing. And then, you know, the whole idea is that your muscles will, will fire in the correct sequence when you put yourself in the proper positions associated with biomechanically correct gait patterns right now their their question is like well what is the biomechanically correct gait pattern and it's, it sounds like they're still on the heel toe model and again everything that they sort of established like what what one thing that came to mind for me is like okay they're figuring out asymmetries based on looking at uh, anatomy right so they're looking at the anatomy of the the organ placement and the anatomy of where you know how it affects fascial lines and the shape and the structures Again, they're they're doing very structure based, um, sort of reverse engineering of 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 how human movement should happen, right? So 
it doesn't make sense to do a hamstring curl to activate your hamstrings because again, if you put your, if you stack your joints in the right place, you stay back chain dominant, you set your bow and you, you learn how to corner it, your hamstring's gonna fire because your, your joints are stacked in the right place and you're loading naturally, gravity is gonna pull you down while your joints are stacked in the proper way. And in, you know, basically in response, your nervous system will fire to create tension to support your structure. And that is how you activate your muscles correctly. Now, what they're saying is like, hey, let's, I, you know, the, the idea of just isolating the muscles by contracting them with a machine doesn't make sense. So what we'll do is we'll, uh, you know, isolate them, but with the rest of the chain as well, you know, like we'll, we'll still do linear movements and weightlifting, but we'll also, you know, incorporate other parts of the chain as well. Is that kind of what you're getting? Cause that's what I got. Um, kind of, um, okay. So I think that the assessment is really key here, right? Um, where was I going with this? I kind of lost, lost my train of thought on that just because let me play back one section here. I'm just gonna play the start and then we can talk about it again. Of someone's skeleton and then orient that skeleton in a way where the muscles are going to be able to work in the orientations we want them to work in. And we can do that by respecting gait references. So when my heel strikes the ground, my hamstring should kick on. So maybe instead of doing prone hamstring curls, I could do something where I'm making a neurological association between my heel, a posterior pelvic tilt, which is what happens when your heel strikes the ground, concentric hamstring activity, left abs maybe, and then heel reference. Okay, let's talk about that. So basically he's saying that um, there's certain things that happen, certain muscles that kick on when you hit your heel down and certain pelvic rotations that should happen. If they're not happening at the same time, let's do a linear based exercise to get them to fire at once. And then when we come back to gate, they'll fire in the proper sequence. Let's say hamstrings with a posterior tilt when I hit the ground with my heel and we're going to do more nervous system exercises to get them to come together. Okay. Which may be like, it may work a little bit, but are you getting into the bow? Like you have to land in a bow no matter what. It's the landing position, okay? So like there's, it's not addressed there. Um, anything in terms of the, you know, spiral model of movement is not addressed there. It's let's get them to fire together and hope it happens during gate, okay? And, and it may, but yeah. I, I just don't think it's the best way to do it. Well, and again, we're, we're talking about a difference in gate models as well. So if you're not, yeah, get well, and again, they do a lot of core bracing work. They do a lot of planks and a lot of, you know, fire the core and sequence and, you know, work the, work the obliques and everything. So we're, we're using different maps of gate mechanics, right? So when they're fixing posture and they're fixing these asymmetries, they're not thinking in turn, like they're thinking in terms of a, a, a linear model where your core is going to be braced. And again, the spine is that passive column. I, I'm making assumptions here, right? They're still talking about pelvic tilt and pelvic shit, uh, like a pelvic rotation happening within the gait cycle. But like, if they're acknowledging that, I don't see how they could not acknowledge the spine moving in concert with that, right? Um, yeah, I'm not, we'll, we'll get to the spine because I'm not exactly sure what they teach. I see a lot of cueing neutral and uh, bracing the core from them. Um, but I haven't seen anything with regards to the spinal engine and how to use the spine correctly as you walk, even the being in your columns or having your head over your foot as you land, that's nowhere to be found. So all of the easy concepts I haven't found yet. And I found a lot of complexity back to what I was saying before, 
it says here in, in a slide, skeletal position drives muscular function. Okay. Gota would say that was true as well. I think, I think most, you know, of the higher level movement practitioners would say that that's true. However, uh, Gota never fires a muscle on purpose just to fire it. It's you're getting into the positions and you're getting the skeletal structure to, uh, move in a way that harnesses the elastic recoil power, the fascial and the connective tissue recoil power. Let's say in the hip, you get into a bow and then you corner it, you, it rotates. Okay. So, um, I think PRI actually purposefully turns on muscles and I know they have a concept of co-contraction. Let's say as you step the muscles in the front of the uh, knee and the back of the knee will co-contract and it will keep you safe. However, where's the bow to be found? Where's the, the actual, um, skeletal structure that needs to be there when you land to earth. I don't see them talking about that. I see them. Okay. The hamstring fires when you land. So we need to co-contract the hamstring firing with the heel touching the ground and the right pelvic tilt. Um, muscles don't voluntarily fire when you're walking. That's the problem and running, especially the very, the faster you go, the more elastic and positioning takes over. Okay. So you're never firing a muscle purposely in your actual walk or like most people don't 99% of the time. Right. So getting that as an exercise to make yourself purposefully fire a muscle. So hopefully it happens during the gate. I don't think is the right way to go or not the easiest way to do it. Right. Getting a ball. Also, it, it, it sounds like it's okay. So, so what I'm hearing is like, if you're doing a movement practice, like a Goda, uh, or something that you and I would prescribe, you would end up creating the right joint angles to create tension and to encourage fascial elasticity and, and the, 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 basically the collection and release of that elastic power coming from the tissues. It's not just focusing, like basically your muscles will contract on their own when they're in, when your skeletal structure is in the right uh, loading pattern, which is kind of what yep. I, I, that, that's what I was trying to say earlier was this guy was almost looking at like that, the co-contraction thing that you were talking about. It's like, okay, well, when, when the heel strikes, the hamstring flexes and here's the position, here's the situation. So let's create an environment where we can fire these muscles all at once, but we'll create an exercise around it as opposed to training the pattern itself like we're talking about training the pattern so that within the pattern these things will naturally fire and you will train the tissues to behave in the elastic way that they're sort of oriented to that what you want to orient them to behave in um yeah i i like versus the way that they're doing it it sounds like they're trying to put together these exercises so that you fire the muscles in the right sequence so that your skeletal structure they're basically, they're doing exercises so that your skeletal structure and your patterns will fix themselves. And we're saying we'll fix the patterns and the structure first, and then the, the muscles will fire in the right way. It's, it's almost and, like the reverse. And they're getting pretty specific too, like more specific than I see from most. So it's great stuff. Like the, they recognize that, you know, different angles of your pelvis compared to your uh, like actual femur will pull muscles differently. Okay. I don't see a lot of people even acknowledging that. However, again, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. However, I, as a first principle, I think Goda has the mathematics correct of the body. They found the way that people are naturally supposed to move. 
So we have a model now, and you may not believe it. However, I'm using it, and it's massively successful for me. So I'm going to keep going with that, and it's very a lot more simple. I think that if you follow Goda's principles, um, combined with the spinal engine, combined with a pressure wave, a uh, infinity pattern in your upper body, okay? Um, I think you're going to get a lot more fruit a lot easier than really parsing out everything into parts and hoping it comes back together correctly, okay? Now, I haven't gone deeply enough into their stuff to know where their corrections are. However, a lot of the stuff that I have heard are principles. I think I'm a guy named Connor Harris on YouTube. He's got some yeah, great that was stuff, the, right? That was the webinar that we were watching was a guy named Connor Harris, right? And so, like, yeah. I, I haven't, I've never worked with a PRI um, practitioner. I've never done any of the corrective exercises. I've never, ex like, that's one system I've actually never done myself. Though I feel, and for, for me, like, most of the stuff that we've talked about, I've actually done myself. And that's the big difference when we're, I feel like I'm going in blind a little bit because, you know, I, like, like you said, you probably did about 15 hours of research. I probably did about like six max, you know, I've, like. I've seen a lot of their exercises and I'm, I'm a professional too. I've seen thousands of people. I've been done a massive amount of rehab with people and a lot of the same exercises that they're using, like against the wall, squeezing the ball in, feeling your foot against the wall, going from, the fifth metatarsal to the first metatarsal and getting that sensory information in your brain to know what it feels like on your foot. It's good stuff. It's not great stuff to me. Okay. It's going to like, if you squeeze a ball with your legs, with your foot against the wall or, or standing up, you're going to get used to that pattern. And that's what you don't want. Keep inside ankle bone high, land in a bow, perfect your bow, learn the rotary model, land on your fourth and fifth spinal engine pressure wave. Um, I think you're just going to get a lot more fruit, a lot faster, a lot easier. Um, however, I do see a lot of great information. So yeah, let's get more specific again. Yeah. And, and with, with them, I find, again, it's very anatomy based, right? So as opposed to movement based where you have principles of movement and how the body should behave during movement, um, he, he alluded to the idea that of a way that the body should behave during movements in the gate. So for example, the heel striking down first and by correlation, the hamstring turns on and you have this set of behaviors happening, right? And, he, and, and it's funny because like I, different things that I saw were like, yeah, there's internal rotation that uh, that occurs at the hip during the gate as you take off. It's like, well, that, that sounds like a heel away all day principle that go to talk about if you're doing internal rotation off the step, right? having your heel come away that the, oh, it's like, is that what you're talking about? Cause when they're doing that, that internal rotation, they're doing it with the, the support foot behind them. Right. So I see it's like, Oh, okay. There's some, there's some pattern consistencies here, but I don't think that they have their first principles of, of gait and of posture clearly defined, um, which, which makes it difficult to say, it's like, what, it, like here, here's the issue. You have asymmetries. Okay, so what is the symmetrical um, sort of gold standard that you're working toward? What are the what are the first principles that we want to achieve by doing these corrective exercises? That's what's kind of missing for me in this whole process. So I know from learning this a million times and seeing it on a million different pages that there is one way to look at gate that's early stance, mid stance, late stance. Everyone's working off the same model except for go to whack method, functional pattern, whatever, right? So 
everyone's working off that early stance, mid stance, late stance, and your uh, systems go according to that. However, that's not how it works. Bow and corner is way better. Like, let's dump this early stance, mid stance, late stance model. And it's a rotary model, guys. Like, it, it just is. And um, where's the slow motion? You know what I mean? Like, the slow motion here, show me all these things that you're saying where you can get somebody on the ground, get them squeezing a ball, get them pushing in their, you know, their feet against the wall to feel their midfoot and all that. Probably works a little bit, but let's see the before and after in a gait model um, in slow motion. And I would guarantee in my own mind that, you know, a GOAT or WEC method or functional patterns would bring you more results. Okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna speak for probably GOATA for the most part on that, right? Because I've done it mostly myself and uh, and that's just what I see from that. I can slow-mo myself, I, I can have an easy analysis and I can improve from there with just a simple checklist. I don't have to do any of these ground-based uh, sensory exercises that may be good for some people um, to feel the bottom of their foot and that's great stuff, right? Like the average person can't feel the bottom of their foot so knowing what the fifth metatarsal feels like and knowing what the first, you know, metatarsal feels like and to shift your foot back and forth will give people a lot right off the get-go because it's just, it's more bringing more awareness to the area and it's great to bring awareness to your extremities because it's the first thing to hit the earth, right? And then everything has to kind of orient around that. So, I mean, yeah, a lot of their stuff could be good. I just, I think I, I just like the go to way better. The issue that I see kind of cropping up for me anyway is this idea of using, you know, static linear isolated patterns to train coordinated synthesized fluid movement, right? And for, for me, it's, you know, like I, I try not to think like, like anything that's joint isolation or brace the core at this point and, and is, is training movement outside of the context of movement is is something that's like a little bit sketchy like it it for me i think the associations with the gait pattern itself are, are almost erroneous because you and i are operating from the spinal engine and a rotary model of the foot pivot like we we don't have the heel toe and we don't have the brace the core model within our within the model of locomotion that we work with um you know one of the questions he asked was you know are, is there any application to some of these principles that you could see with, uh, you know, training in GOTA or training in WEC method or, or applying the spinal engine. You know, one of the first things that comes to mind for me is maybe the application would be if you know that you have a bias towards your right side, if that is like structurally and neurologically, we have a bias towards, you know, dumping into our right side, then when you're setting your columns, which is, you know, stack your ankles, knees and hips, then just make sure that your hips are straight and your knees are straight and that you're just standing straight get back chain dominance so that and 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 make sure that your shoulders are level and be in your columns and then you, that that right side bias is going to disappear essentially like don't dump into one side get into your columns and be even you know that's that's for yeah, me that's like that that that's the most applicable thing in terms of standing posture that i can see well that's that's a great point and uh like let's say for the um the one slide you showed me where the guy had his right hip rotated back, okay, and the left hip forward. So basically the whole anominate, the uh, hip complex has rotated back towards the right and 
up towards the front. The tissues behind your right hip uh, in your QL region, in your low back, will be tense and tight. Okay, so for me, I know where to target my soft tissue and I know where to target my increasing length work. That's where you can like, you know, bring in uh, FRC, ATG, length with strength type thing if you want. However, I just, I do it pretty basic. I get elongation and relaxation of the muscle and then I go back into go to patterns. So um, for me, it's it's like that. Yeah, you're, you're correct about um, the nominate turning, the hip bone turning. You're correct about what happens at the femur. However, my intervention is gonna be a lot simpler um, than I see from what they're doing. Plus they're using force plates for bilateral movement to see where the, uh, this is what I see from them anyway, for my limited time. They use force plates to see where you're pushing your weight from on your foot. Um, to me, it, unless it's in movement, it doesn't matter so much, okay? Right. Um, the squat is a specialized movement if you're doing it for weightlifting. It's a resting posture for humans, okay? And a double bow's landing position. So, um, yeah, basically, everyone's trying to, this is another point, everyone's trying to figure out how to lift better, how to bring lifting into gait mechanics. It, it just doesn't work. You have to lift weight forward. Your hips have to be behind you, butt behind rib cage. Uh, fixing squats can only go so far because you're accelerating your hip forward and your spine's going backwards, period. Okay, so like you can only fix that so much. And the attempt to prove or the attempt with each system to actually fix the squat instead of Goda being like, hey, guys, let's just do something better. Let's let's dip it. Okay, so I think that's the truth there. I think to me anyway, I see them telling the truth about the squat and, and the squat and the deadlift are king exercises right now. Everyone wants to get better at them. They're still held in high regard and strength and conditioning. Well, you can only fix it so much. You just have to switch what you do for strength training in order to move it into locomotion. Um, fixing it can only go so far in the static plane with two legs on the ground, driving through your this heels. Is, this is really interesting because I think that the Postural Restoration Institute stuff, the asymmetries that they're talking about are going to have a way more intense and pronounced effect on you if you specialize in developing strength and linear movements like squatting and deadlifting. Like if you do have like this pelvic shift and stuff and you start building, uh, like I, I remember like deadlifting with a mixed grip and, and, and over time because I'm pulling one way and pushing the other with my, with my grip alone, my hips started to shift. And I ended up having like a really tight piriformis on my underhand grip and a really tight hip flexor and, and so it's on my, on the overhand grip side that I had. And I started to develop this hip shift, right? And, and the more imbalances in asymmetries that you have when you're doing these bilateral, um, you know, intense movements that are developing musculature, developing neurological output, like it's going to show up more. That's why it's like people can, can do nothing but bilateral movement and they're sore on one side. Right. So it's, it's, it almost feels like it, Hey, if you're going to specialize in linear movement, then do these linear corrective exercises so that you hurt yourself less in linear movement. But the reality is human beings are bilateral creatures because we walk because unilateral. You know, or sorry. Yeah. You were not bilateral creatures. We are unilateral creatures. That's my bad. Um, 
we are unilateral creatures because we, you know, we, we walk, <laughs> you know, we do things from side to side. That's sort of what, what our native function as, as human beings is. So we, you know, again, I think, I think the utility is more oriented towards linear movement as opposed to fluid dynamic final engine oriented rotary model locomotive movement. Yeah, to be fair, I do see them doing a lot of unilateral work. And I almost saw that one slide you put up, it was almost a bow and corner. However, I did watch that same thing that uh, you put up, uh, the guy doing a row in the bow or, or in a lunge. And uh, the cue was brace the core. The cue is to, you know, do the row. And, and I feel like they're like halfway there. But if you do go to and you actually go through the motions that you would when you're running, that's going to transfer into running and locomotion much better. Okay, so there's only so much you can get from the unilateral model without moving it into motion. Okay. Um, yeah, so again, to be fair to them, they do have a lot of, uh, uh, and again, I'm not with the Postural Restoration Institute and I haven't looked at enough of their work. So I don't want to speculate any much more than that. Yeah. However, the differences, let's go with the differences between them and Gota. Okay, because there is some fundamental differences, first principle differences. Like the, um, the pressure going through the big toe. Okay, so again, the model for them is heel, fourth and fifth, rolling into the big toe and a perfect step would be where you don't collapse your arch that much, it just collapses a little bit and you're in control of that step all the way to the big toe. And then once the big toe comes off, then you're resupinating, you're bringing your foot back into position to do it again, mm -hmm. okay? So that to them is a perfect step to PRI, right? And to, that's most 95% of the industry, that is the model, okay? However, they've stuck to this model and they're like, go to presenting something different that says, no, you don't have to go on the big toe. And it drives them wild, I think. I see a lot of, a lot of people in the industry really, really hating this idea because it, fundamentally changes what has to be done at the foot and ankle and in, in training. Okay. So um, a lot of people will have a hard time letting this go. For me, I know in my, like in my movement practice, I'm using, I'm staying off the big toe, right? Like I realize that my movement is a lot better when I can put most of my weight on the fourth and fifth and pivot off that. Now I will dump into the big toe a little bit, but it's not on purpose. I'm trying to stay away from that. I'm not trying not to collapse the dome at all in my foot, okay? To PRI, that's okay to collapse a little bit because it'll bounce back as long as you're in control of the bones hitting the ground, right? Mm -hmm. That's why they do a lot of sensory feeling type of exercises where you can feel the fifth metatarsal, the bones, roll to the first metatarsal, and you take off the first metatarsal. However, it breaks down when you start cutting. You really think you can control your metatarsals coming down at a perfect angle when you're cutting at full tilt, push off the big toe perfectly without dropping your ankles. And we know that dropping your ankles at that angle will put your knee into an internal valgus and just ready to shred, okay? So you really, like, does anyone want to debate that, that that should be the way to do it? Or if you keep your inside ankle bone high, push off the fourth and fifth 
and have that ankle bone climb as you're trying to cut, it may drop a little bit. However, you're going to be a lot more protected if you have your weight on the outside of your foot. And I've found this in my own practice, and that's what I'm going with. I used to have the big toe model. However, it just doesn't work for me anymore. It's not as good as the fourth and fifth. And the fourth and fifth is actually easy to get, like to have most of your weight pivot off that once you start to understand it and start to train it. But most people don't even have that concept that it's a possibility. So everyone's still training the fifth to the first, to the big toe. I don't think you're supposed to push all your weight off the big toe or the majority of your weight off the big toe. Um, I think you should be keeping on the fourth and fifth. And you can feel the wave of pressure coming up the outside of your leg being dispersed through your IT band and everything. And when you're talking about that collapse, that internal knee valgus that starts, you know, creating that counter rotational force at the knee, that torque at the knee that starts to, you know, get some ACL shred. And, uh, like that's uh, like, you're, you're talking about now pivoting and, and dispersing the weight, not just absorbing the weight, right? Not, not just like collapsing into your structure and having your, your structure kind of, I, I don't, I haven't met someone who wants to debate that point yet, by the way, if I find them, I'm going to get them on the podcast and we can have a conversation. I haven't found anyone who wants to debate that. The debate will go, take a look at Usain Bolt. His uh, ankle bones are collapsing in as he runs and his weight is going to his toes. So therefore, uh, even the best guys are doing it. Most people do it. So that's how it should be done. The ankle bone climbing, not having your dome collapse and pivoting off the fourth and fifth is a concept from watching the indigenous, watching um, the great movers, Jordan, heal away all day. That is the bone spinning internally. That is not him dumping into his big toe he's moving better than Usain Bolt okay he can cut he can run he can pivot he can do all the movements he's just not as fast linearly as Bolt okay so for me yeah my ankle bone will collapse as I run it's it's true it does however I'm trying to climb it because I don't want that to happen that's the difference my goal is to get the ankle bone climbing as I move and not let it collapse at all not control it I'm going to just control where I'm landing and the pivot. I'm not controlling uh, my bones moving linearly from fifth to first. That's not the goal anymore. Okay. So fundamentally it's going to be off there. So I want to kind of go back to some of these principal ideas of PRI and, and how they apply to movement. Let's say someone does have a structural asymmetry right because we all we all have structural asymmetries my personal experience with addressing it right now is i'm just training my gait mechanics and i'm doing mostly go to based movements um i'm doing a lot of groundwork i'm doing a lot of pressure wave creation i'm doing a lot of drop-ins and, and opening up into my hip and i'm doing a little bit of mobility work within the math right um within those you know the first principle ideas of go to and i'm finding that for the most part when i'm filming myself in slow motion my asymmetries are showing up less and less do you think that just practicing proper biomechanics and getting into the right patterns will address asymmetries or do you think you need to be a little more aggressive and have you know maybe like corrective exercises to address asymmetrical uh, biomechanics um i think being in the math is stopping the bleeding so uh 
and it'll correct you over a period of time. However, you can have an isolated part that is really stuck and will stop you from getting into a good go to pattern. That is where isolation work will be good. Let's say um, the PRI concept of the right hip rotating towards the back. If you're uh, bound up back there, your tissue is so tense that you can't have a good motion of your pelvis, then having some isolated work, some you know muscle work, whatever you know how to do. For me, it would be soft tissue, aggressive, aggressive cupping and motions afterwards, very specific motions in the pelvis to get it to move the way it should, then go into my go to work. That's how I would do it. And really you have to look at somebody's history. Um, there's a million different things that can happen to you to, to cause asymmetries in your body. PRI, like in general, they're like the body's asymmetrical. The, pivot or the hip pivots like this the femurs pivot like this yeah theoretically it probably does but in reality when you see an individual they have way more going on historically usually that'll cause an asymmetry that isn't under the theoretical model right, right. so again stopping the bleeding is the most important part get with get in the math learn how to land to earth learn how to leave earth okay instead of Complicating things, that's not how I do it. Landing, leaving, spinal engine, bow, like work on the bow and uh, understand the rotary action and you're, you're on your way to being a lot better, okay? A lot less pain and a lot better movement. Um, however, there's multiple ways to skin a cat, you know, so. Yeah, this is, this is a, you know, I think it's basically, do you want to get really complicated and try to, you know, throw a gazillion different corrective exercises at yourself? Or do you want to try to stand in your columns, get back chain dominant, start working on bows and corners, start, uh, you know, basically working your way into this rotary model of gait. And then as you're doing it, using that as a reference point to see where are you tight? Where are you not being able to access, you know, like where can you, where's your spiral inefficient? Can you get into your hip when you're doing your bow? If you can't, well, maybe you need to do a little bit of myofascial release and a little bit of joint articulation afterwards. Um, that's that's our method anyway. That's the the sort of direction that that you know you and I have. We've spent now thirty freaking episodes. I can't believe that thirty episodes talking about getting into the right biomechanics will correct tissue imbalance. Well, well, it'll it'll activate the right tissues and relax the right ones. It will. You know, it's not. And and then if you need extra intervention on top of that you know, using specific myofascial release with, with movement coupled in with it is going to give you way, way more return. I think overall, just from what I looked at, it's interesting, but it's mostly anatomy based. It works in a linear model. It doesn't use, it, it's still within the brace, the core and the heel toe model of gait and, and, you know, spinal action. So it doesn't, talk about or consider the spinal engine and a lot of the movements that it is training are linear based movements in isolation not in the context of movement itself so i think its applications for how it'll improve movement are somewhat limited but if you specialize in a sport that is linear which is to say weightlifting if you are a weightlifting hobbyist and you don't address your asymmetries you are going to get more injured so you would want to basically use a more linear approach to fixing your asymmetry so that you can perform better linearly. That's my take on it. Yeah. Um, 
I think that the linear model ends at some point. You can keep it going for a while. And a lot of the guys like ATG and, and you know, getting your length through strength type of thing will mitigate a lot of the problems of lifting. However, it's not movement. It's not gait. And my first principle is gait being fundamental to human motion and, and the way that the body actually operates mm. by nature. Okay. Because we have to walk, no matter what, you're an office worker, you're walking 10,000 or so steps, right? So, um, it's my fundamental movement pattern that I move the body towards. However, I think that they say that as well. I think that they operate in the gate mechanic paradigm or they claim to early stance, mid stance, late stance, toe off, heel toe, um, shin angle, spine and shin angle training, um, no mention of back chain dominance versus front chain dominance, no mention of spinal engine, no mention of uh, resting postures, no slow motion assessment of actual movement. Um, no, like there's a lot missing that I, I've seen. Maybe it's there. I don't know. But a lot of theory and a lot of papers were referenced. So when you're building a model on that much theory, um, uh, the reason I like Gota is because or work method or even functional patterns is because I can see it happen. And I'm like, oh, that's the movement I want, right? And I can bring it into my own practice. With the theoretical stuff, um, I, it, it doesn't work so much. I've done that my whole life. I've learned all the theory, not all the theory, but a lot of the theory at school and, you know, looking at different practitioners and all that. And it just doesn't work for me. I like the actual idea of, watching yourself slow motion, see, feel, recorrect. Now I have a easy checklist to go to. Um, that's the, the go to checklist. And um, yeah, that's the way I would structure it. I am going to look a little bit more into PRI though, because I do, again, as much as I sounded like I kind of shitted on them today, it was, um, I agree with 80% of what I heard, right? So yeah. there's some good stuff there. Um, Fundamentally, I just don't agree for the reasons I just, I said, right? So, yeah, some of the neurological stuff I found was kind of interesting, but also I, I kind of question it when they, when they talk about the separation between the left and the right hemisphere, more recent neurological research that I've kind of peeped into is starting to question the whole like left brain, right brain split idea. Um, there's, there's a lot more cohesion than than was originally thought like a person can't be like left brain creative right brains logical as as they used to think or whatever they used to think it was um just because hemispheres and parts of the brain are responsible for different functions it doesn't mean that it doesn't operate as a, as a unified whole anyway so the whole right brain left brain thing it's like ah, i don't really don't really know how much of an impact that's going to make on movement if you're going to be you know, like I'm left-handed, but according to PRI, I would still have more dexterity with my right hand and my right side of my body and more uh, proprioception and dexterity in general on my right side. I'm like, I don't necessarily know. I think there are rules for, you know, right side being dominant or for right-handed people, and most people are right-handed. I think it switches when you're left-handed. And, and to go with the brain model, I actually don't even agree with three quarters of what I hear from the brain models, the right brain, the left brain, uh, I think it was a right brain person who put that together. You know what I mean? Somebody who's yeah. uh, very like anatomy based, like where is the consciousness in the brain that comes to that sort of philosophical discussion. I think the brain is a radio receiver. 
Drop the mic. It's crazy, I know. But I do think that, right? I think it's more, it's it's both. I think it's like a computer and a radio receiver. There's no model for that, and I don't want to go deep into it now, but my whole like uh, paradigm has shifted on that where I think that, let's let's talk on a vibrational level, right? You will attract what vibration you put in. This goes with movement as well, right? So I think the brain receives energy, and I think that your body puts out that energy and your brain is a radio receiver. Um, right now, the scientific model is very like, where are the parts? Where do the cords go? How do the cords relay? And th that's your model. And back to the brain, it's like, it's not that asymmetrical in terms of weight and distribution of the, the organic structure inside, right? It's very symmetrical actually. So I, I don't know where that one's going so much as the right brain and the left brain are different. Yeah, I, I don't know. Uh, and you know, it's it's interesting the idea of a radio receiver. I've always thought about the brain as like one part of the entire nervous system, right? It's it might have like the highest level of uh, electrical activity as a center, and it processes a lot. And it's almost like I I almost considered it like a storehouse for for a lot of information. But like I always considered my brain inseparable from my body because my nervous system is always inputting and outputting different uh, stimuli, right? Like every time I touch something or see something or hear something or smell something or taste something, every time that my, uh, you know, my gut uh, digests food and, and, you know, serotonin is produced in the gut and all these different things, like it's receiving and sending so many different inputs at all times. It's inseparable from my environment. Like my brain, it, you know, is the room that I'm in, is the, is the fan blowing on me. It's like, it's, you know, it's again, this is where my my yoga influence kind of comes out a little bit but the idea that we're you know separate for, like, like th that you can basically dissect ourselves into these separate parts like the brain obviously has a function within the body but it's not it's 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 inseparable from the rest of your nervous system essentially well, um, I think. what i agree with everything you just said but that's still within the internal model like things relaying within your body i'm talking literally like an mri is you know if somebody puts a functional mri on their brain it's like think about this sort of subject and a certain part of your brain will light up right science would say in my opinion that if you cut your brain open the activity of your consciousness is somewhere in there we just haven't found it yet okay and that functional MRI will that part of the brain will light up and that's where it is we just can't find the actual cells um it's a radio receiver in my mind okay that is way out it's actually receiving energy from something I don't know we haven't found yet but uh that's that's a whole different subject maybe we could do a whole podcast on that because I have to could. be able to deliver the thought process properly yeah, well, you know, even even well, what you just said, the idea that consciousness is within the brain, I've always felt, well, I haven't always, like in my own spiritual journey, in my own journey and exploration of, you know, neurology and trying to figure out who and what I am, uh, it, I, I believe that consciousness is, is everything and everywhere. And so the brain is in consciousness. Consciousness is not in the brain. The brain is within consciousness, you know, the, 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 the within, within consciousness itself, like the brain is experienced and expressing itself within the field of consciousness. So consciousness isn't something that happens within the brain. It's the, 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 the opposite, right? And again, we could do a whole podcast on this. It's a little more esoteric than, uh, than biomechanics, right? But I, I agree with you Absolutely. in terms of 
uh, a lot of what you're what you're saying is is really interesting, and I, I love that the conversation went in this direction because I don't I don't think we have kind of covered these types of ideas, right? I, I speaking of the brain, you know, like because because again, it's it's this thing where uh, I saw this really fascinating thing where they created this prosthetic thumb, this extra thumb that you could attach on the other side of your hand, and it was controlled by a sensor in your foot. Right, and they studied some of the brain activity that was happening in the people who were using this thing. And like in in a matter of a couple of days, people could perform more complex tasks. And in a matter of a couple of weeks, people were you know they they didn't even think about it. It was just this extra limb. And after like a month or so, it, it felt like a part of their body. They were saying, and the neurological adaptations basically you know the brain created space and a new operating system to operate as if you had six fingers. Or five, you know, you know, four fingers and two thumbs, as opposed to, you know, the, the typical five finger model. And that was really fascinating to me because again, it's like this idea that, you know, it's just our body and it's just our brain, like our brain is constantly changing. And like you said, this radio receiver thing, this whole idea of like when you have this external you have these like these inputs from consciousness, like you're consciously controlling this thumb while your brain just literally reshaped itself to accommodate this extra limb that you never had before. Yeah. Like even with what you're saying there, um, I, I should, I should clarify that the brain does have actual like motor inputs, right? So I can like, I can trace the cord through the body and show you where the cord ends and the muscle will move. I'm, I was talking more on the conscious level, like, yeah. getting ideas, thoughts, consciousness, soul. Um, I don't know if that's completely from within. I think it's from without. However, again, that's more Eastern philosophy. And I, I think science would disagree with me on that. They would be like, okay, where are the atoms coming from? Let's, let's measure them. Where, are the, where's the receiver? Where are the waves coming from? Right? So um, that's what a person grounded in science, I think would say. And, and, they would probably beat me in a debate if science was the measure, right? So yeah, again, I'm not saying that uh, that you don't use parts of your brain to move, and that's what Neuralink is really, right? Like they're bypassing motor patterns, I would I would assume, and and uh, using electrical inputs to fire certain parts, maybe increase the activity in certain parts of your brain, so you become smarter, faster. Let's say if you have a brain uh, spinal cord injury that it can bypass that part and uh, the electrical signal can be conducted physically to a, to a part that has been disconnected. So yeah, I'm not like the brain is obviously both. However, the only part that's not recognized is that uh, ideas consciousness comes from without as well as from within science would say it only comes from within. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. And that's, you know, I find, um, Sam Harris's work is really interesting to get into because he's a neuroscientist and he he, he still has, uh, you know, a lot of respect for the material, rational, reductionist view of the brain being, you know, the center point of generating this experience of consciousness. But would, if you, you know, do any of his meditation practices, he eventually teaches you to experience consciousness as a field in which all sensation and experiences are happening and also teaches you to disidentify with uh, you know, necessarily being the mind, being the generator of thoughts, or being even the meditator who is meditating, um, which once you experience, again, this, this is a hard thing to kind of explain, 
because it has to be a felt experience to kind of really see that there's a field of consciousness with which in which all, ex, all like all experiences are arising within. Um, but the fact that you can have a neuroscientist who says, you know, well, I still think that consciousness is being generated within the brain, while also this experience of, you know, the, the field of consciousness is just happening. Like, it's this idea that, you know, all your sensations and all the sounds that you're experiencing and all the thoughts that you're having, they're all happening within the same field of consciousness. And, and once you experience consciousness as a field, it's really hard to just be like, well, my brain is just doing all of this. <laughs> Uh, absolutely. No, I agree with, I agree with all that you just said. Um, it's kind of like this. If a scientist, uh, I, I kind of almost, I shouldn't say debated. I had a discussion with an engineer and I, I gave this idea of, you know, having a field of consciousness and having a, ra a radio receiver versus, you know, a computer in your brain. Right. And I could, I could see he was thinking about it and then I almost felt like he was going, yeah, that's not possible because I would know the, we'd be able to detect the radio, the waves coming from within. There'd have to be actual atomic energy coming into your brain and we can detect that, right? Versus like a field of consciousness. Um, you know, if, if you don't have a radio and you, you don't have the dial to turn stations, you're never going to get that station. You know what I mean? Um, Wi-Fi, you won't get Wi-Fi if you don't have a router. There's actually physically waves coming in your house and, and going to that router and, and making your internet happen. Same with TV, same with all that, right? So those are all receivers of energy and then the output comes from the computer, right? That's more along the model that I'm going with. However, we can't find, or science hasn't been able to find this consciousness, which I don't think they're looking, However, they also haven't been able to find consciousness from within the brain. Mm -hmm. So their model is incomplete as well. Where my model is incomplete according to the science, so is the, the current model. Where is your consciousness? Where is it stored? Where is it located? Yeah, I mean, this is, this is the hard problem of consciousness that philosophers, scientists, and, and spiritualists have been debating literally since the dawn of fucking time, right? Like, we just, we don't have an answer to that. And that's kind of, there's... Um, for me, like, I almost enjoy just experiencing the mystery of it, right? Because, again, the more that I – and this is maybe almost a Zen approach, this idea that the hard uh, problem of consciousness isn't supposed to be solved, and then you kind of experience the truth of it because your ego drops and you can actually see truth for a minute when you're not trying to materially break it down. You can see that that's like – you know, trying to figure it out, quote-unquote, is, is almost like an obstruction to consciousness itself. Do you think, so this is a random question. Do you think a caveman would be like, you know, one of their family members dies and, you know, let's say he decomposes, he sees the brain and he's like, oh, all the consciousness is within this material here, right? Well, well no, no you, you would experience your life and you would experience things. You'd see things, feel things. You would probably actually go with more of a uh, model that I was explaining before, more of the receiver model because you would be closer to nature and you would be in sync and rhythm with actual nature. You have to get up at a certain time. You have to hunt at a certain time. You have to move at a certain time. You have to uh, rest at a certain time. Now we've gotten all away from that and it's all within the brain. So that's just an well, interesting. I, I think, yeah, well, I think it's very fascinating. I know that in 
Eastern cultures, especially like historical Eastern cultures, I think even uh, the Chinese character for mind is like synonymous with heart. So there was this idea that like uh, there was a heart center and and a lot of Eastern cultures and different tribal cultures believe that the center of consciousness was was the heart. And I that kind of makes sense to me because in meditation this morning, I was doing an exercise where I was having different thoughts that evoke different emotions. And I was trying to pay attention to the feeling signature of where these emotions were felt. Like, how, how do I recognize what an emotion is? Like, what does anger feel like in my body? And, and, and what, is the, what is the footprint of that? What is the actual signature that makes me know that I'm angry or that I'm happy or that I'm feeling love or that I'm feeling any of these emotions? And it was really funny because it's like, for me, I can identify, like I can discern the difference between anger and happiness but when i was trying to feel the the signature of it in my body and the the sort of energetic pattern of that happening in my body it was harder for me to sort of pick up the nuances and, and understand wh what the origin of that was but most of it kind of felt like it was or originating from the center of my body right like this heart center was kind of like creating patterns of energy throughout other parts of my body and so when when you're talking about the the uh, conscious uh, the brain as a receiver right a, like a radio receiver i almost think of the changing the dial as emotions like your emotional state the ener the pattern of energy of emotions sort of dictate what quality of thoughts that you're having and what quality of of sort of nervous system input and, and output that you're having so if you can modulate the the feeling tone in your, your body this pattern of energy in your body like you have you have way better and more productive thoughts when you're emotionally neutral or slightly happy or slightly positive than you do when you're angry or you're frustrated or you're vengeful. Um, generally speaking, the, the the quality of your decisions is much better in my experience. And then even even more, like even better than if you were like crazy happy, like ecstatic happy. That's like bipolarism, right? That the people have is this this um, hysteria, this mania and the depression states that they go between and they have a harder time making grounded good decisions that benefit themselves is because they're living in these extremes of energy and they make decisions based in these extremes of energy and they have thoughts based in these extremes of energy. Um, this is where I think, you know, when we're talking, let, let's just relate it back to movement, right? And back to biomechanics and posture, right? When your body is tense or it's it's um, you know has bad posture and you're feeling like this sort of compression or you're in pain, these that is a pattern of energy within consciousness as well. Like that is creating feedback to your consciousness and producing and generating different qualities of thoughts. So you're receiving different qualities of thoughts based on the overall energy of your body, your emotional state, your physical state. Um, your spiritual state, if you want to, uh, you know, kind of push that direction, but your mental state is inter interlinked to all of these different things. So, you know, the, like, the idea that you're a receiver, right, is is really fascinating because people think that they, the, like, the general feeling for Westerners is that the center of consciousness is behind your eyes. It's this idea that, like, you know, in, in my head, like I am looking out from behind my eyes and that's where I am. That's where my consciousness is. I'm in my head. Um, if you actually pay attention to the, to the actual experience of, of your emotional experience of your energetic experience, when I say energy, I don't mean like as like some, some wave form of like ethereal cosmic energy. I'm talking about like the actual, like 
patterns of sensation in your body, whether emotional or physical, you notice that like depending on where your energy is, the patterns of energy, that that is what's generating your thoughts. Like you think you're thinking your own thoughts, but they are arising without you necessarily. This is this is like the best thing about meditation is that you realize that you you are not fully generating your own thoughts consciously. You can choose what you think, but you can't choose what you choose. Well, and so that sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, um so like again, back to the model now, all all of what you described could be from within, except that last part, right? So your heart, you know, feeling that. Uh, scientists would say sensory organ is making your, or sensory nerves are making you feel that. And then it's going up to your brain, increasing the activity, which will uh, release hormones and have different effects on your nervous system and your organs. And then your blood will pump more. And, and that's what's happening there. Um, I'm, I'm talking more along the lines of law of attraction. <laughs> like literally. Yeah, right. Um, yeah. So it's literally coming from without. Okay. And, and from within, what you were describing, you know, um, having a better conscious experience within your own body. So that's coming from within, but there's also you resonating with the field of that similar energy. Okay. So a lot of people will experience this when they go out and, you know, you're in a, in a really bad mood and bad things starts happening to you. You attract different energies that are aligned with what your, body is doing or what your consciousness is doing right over a period of time you'll see a lot of people who are depressed or angry perpetually they get into situations that attract that sort of thing right and when you're in a higher level of energy uh movement happiness uh truth truth is huge movement happiness truth um getting in alignment with those those sort of things will actually improve your movement and allow you to align with the field from without. Okay. So that's my philosophical rant for today. Yeah. And you know what, like what, what you said, I I've, I've experienced that firsthand. I've had moments where my mindset has been absolutely horrendous and my life has just gotten worse and worse. It's, you know, downward and upward, upward spirals. Since we talk about the spiral dynamics of movement, let's talk about the spiral dynamics of, of energy too. You can have a spiral up or you can have a spiral down. Um, and you can have a spiral, you can, you can literally stand in the same spot and spin in circles if you want. That's still a spiral. But everything moves in spirals. So you're either spiraling up or spiraling down or spiraling right where you are. And in terms of the, you know, the, the coming from within or without, my sort of central thesis is there's no difference between within or without. And you can talk about that on a very material level. When you're talking about the law of attraction, you're talking in terms of a quantum or very subtle uh, no level problem. where 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 you're you know you're you're sort of inseparable from the rest of the energy of the universe, and so your your energetic state is going to impact how reality unfolds within your conscious experience. I, you know, even on a material level, you you are not separate from your environment or anyone else. Your personality is based on the information that happens from without and how you interact with it, the relationships that you have and how you interact with those people. Your breath out is a tree's breath in and that tree's breath out is your breath in. There is no separation between you and the environment. You like self implies other, uh, inside implies outside. They are one and the same thing, right? Like you, it's two sides of the same coin, but it's still the same coin. 
within and without are, are, are fundamentally inseparable. And so when you're talking about this idea that like, you know, reality will sort of be, will unfold and be created in front of you, it's the law of attraction. It's like, yeah, absolutely. Because you are the universe, like the unit, like you are reality. You are part of reality. You're a fundamental part of reality. You're inseparable from it. So of course your energy will absolutely influence the reality of which you are a part. I think the erroneous thing that people start to get is like, that we're like this individual being inside of the sandbox and we're like, you know, building sandcastles with our energy, but it's like, we are part of the reality that we're trying to influence. Yeah. And I think that there's a reality without, and every individual has their own reality. That's why individualism is very important because if you plug into the collective a little bit too much, you're going to lose your individuality and go with a collective mindset. And I have a Carl Jung book is his last book, the warning to humanity It was literally that it's like, you must resist the forces of uh, collective thought, which is going to be more and more of an issue in your life. If you look at yourself as an individual. So um, very interesting stuff from Carl Jung. And I see it play out right now as we speak. And, and I do want to make a caveat to the thing that I said before, where it's like, if you are inseparable from your environment too, like your experience of individuality is still very important. Uh, self does imply other, and you do relate yourself to your environment and to your surroundings, but it doesn't mean that you have to be this homogenous sort of blending in where your individuality fades to nothingness. So, you know, individuality is, is a very real thing, even in this philosophical framework. So I think that, I can't remember who said this. I think it may have been young is your first half of your life should be you building, 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 um, making mistakes, building up your consciousness and being an building up your individuality for the first half of your life. And the second half of your life is where you give, 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 where now society is saying, no, 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 we have to have, we have to think very similarly from a very young age. Okay. And that plugs you into a collective thought process. And your individuality can't build and you can't give as much as you could if you allowed that to build. So for my, for me, um, I went through school. I did all that. When I finished Cairo school, I was almost 30 years old. And I'm like, man, I know nothing right now. You know, like yeah. I know absolutely not. I know how much I don't know. I'm getting to that stage, right? Where I, I literally almost, uh, I sacrificed a little bit of work so I could build a new philosophy. I'm out in the woods two, three hours a day to kind of build that up and think and, and try to think on the next level, right? So I could give something to humanity, but if I was only to you know finish chiral school and just go to work and, and watch TV and do the average, go to dinners and do all that, um, I wouldn't have anything to give. I would have to plug into the collective. You know what I mean? So that's kind of along the lines of my own personal experience with what I mean. It's like build yourself up as an individual, give, have something to give. And then the second half of your life is giving to the collective. And I really, well, I, I certainly feel that way because I've made all kinds of mistakes through my twenties. And now that I'm in my thirties, you know, I'm feeling so passionate about even just this podcast and getting people saying, Hey, this is really helpful. Uh, you guys are really, by the way, the listeners to this podcast are really getting to know us beyond just being a couple of guys that are like really nerdy and geek out on movement. Like this is this is like the the level of conversation that we'll have on a, on a regular basis anyway. Um, mm -hmm. So 
you know, just to, just to relay it back to movement, because I do think, you know, consciousness is such a, such a broad and infinite topic. We could have a, we could have, we could have a separate, well, well, actually this is, this is a cool thing. Will and I actually started a podcast, uh, maybe a year or more before the, the art of move happened. And we had recorded a few episodes and we talked about levels of energy. Um, it was a great book by Frederick Dodson. And we were talking about, you know, how, how consciousness uh, on earth expresses itself within different levels of energy. And we talked about different social things and where it fell on this energy scale. And I mean, like you and I could talk about this for hours and I think we should, in fact, like, I think we could have a whole separate podcast if we wanted to, um, you know, uh, to those who are like, what are these guys going on about? Like this is relevant for movement because, you know, in terms of how you view yourself and how you view your consciousness and how you experience your individuality, this, this is all relating to how you relate to your body and, and your conscious experience of your body. And, and, um, you know, in terms of like off the top of your head, how would you relate consciousness or your experience of self to a person's movement? Um, <laughs> okay. So in my, in my younger life, I was, more stuck in my energy. So I was drawn to things that were like that. So for instance, when I was playing sports, my one up on the other kids was that I can amp up my nervous system a little bit more, but that made me tight and bound in, in like my life. Right. Um, weightlifting, like being a heavy bodybuilder really appealed to me because I had that tight energy that like stuck energy. So I wanted to build that up, build it up. This is on a, you know, a philosophical level, right? Um, as I got a little bit older and, and I started getting problems from that, I, it was at the same time as I expanded my consciousness, started learning Eastern philosophy, started reading, you know, uh, there was three years where I read over 200 books every year. Right. I, I was, this was philosophical, like all that stuff. Right. I didn't, try to do anything but take in information. And that led me to a place where I was able to switch what I did with my body, able to unbind my uh, actual physical structure and create a new physical structure. If you saw me when I was bodybuilding, I couldn't wipe my own ass. You know what I mean? I couldn't put my hands together to clap. It was like my pecs were in the way, you know? I don't have long, super long limbs, so it was just getting to a point where my physical structure was impeding it in my movement. And I completely switched that. I went from the big Jack guy to a slender mover. Right. And it really took first a, uh, switch in consciousness to be able to do it. Oh yeah. There's a, there's it's a, a picture, picture for those who, uh, who are listening. We, we do these live on nofilter.net and I do, we're doing a screen share. Um, and there's just this picture of Will looking super, super jacked back when he was bodybuilding. He's got the, you know, the thick, super thick triceps, super thick, uh, traps and super thick back that you can obviously deadlift, you know, five, 600 pounds with. And, uh, and, you know, now if you follow him on Instagram at the art of move way more slender and fluid physique, right? Like it's you, how, how many pounds heavier do you think you are on this photo compared to where probably 40, 40 pounds heavier than I am right now. Um, maybe, maybe a little bit more than that, but I didn't do anything but heavy lifting. Like I did nothing but eat, lift heavy, repeat, repeat, repeat. And I would never miss a day. Right. And, um, it's really hard to go like as a, as a male, it's really hard to go from someone who looks like a Greek God statue to a more thin 
frame, right? Everyone's like, what's happening to you? We're like, why are you getting so skinny? Like it, it's a problem for a lot of people, but at the same time, I was like, man, I feel great right now. You know, like yeah. mm-hmm. things are moving up in my life. I'm getting more intelligence from, uh, you know, going into that cave where I'm learning, I'm becoming the student again. I became the student after school, right? So it's like um, going for a period of intense study, switched my body or allowed me the mindset to release, to switch the body. And now I feel energy flowing through my body. I literally feel like nothing is, well, I shouldn't say nothing, 100% less restricted than I used to be. And things flow through me better. I'm, it's more like the Bruce Lee philosophy. Someone's coming at you, I can move them out of the way, right? Versus I would be the guy who would just pound, right? Like, come at me, I'm gonna go straight at you and we'll just, we'll do it that way, right? Now it's more the philosophy is the sidestep, the keep the energy flowing, right? So yeah, that was a little brief summary on my my history there. That's sweet. And and that's yeah, yeah. So when when you're thinking in terms of like how do you relate this these these high level uh, you know discussions about the nature of consciousness itself to movement. I mean, we've talked about the you know the pivot system of the foot and, and efficiently transferring energy from a bow in a corner rather than just absorbing the force, uh, you know, of a hard step from a heel to toe and, you know, uh, absorbing all of these things. Like you're talking about a smooth transference of energy and efficient transfers of energy from your conscious into the rest of your life. And, you know, the smoother your movement gets, actually, I think, uh, go to BAM just, uh, made a post today about how this is all inextricably linked. And I'll just read that real quick and we'll, we'll wrap it up from there. If the soul is not strong, the mind will not be able to be strong. If the mind is not strong, the body will never truly be strong. On the other hand, if your soul is whole and strong, then your mind will also be strong. If your mind is strong, your body's potential is limitless. Your movement capacity is not an expression of mastery over your body, more so a mastery over your own soul. Something he said five years ago. And Man, I really, that is you know, great stuff. I love it. It's, it's, it's very true. So if we wanted to wrap it all together, thanks, Bam. It just helped us wrap that all together. So that's, uh, that's episode 30 of The Art of Move. We talked about the Postural Restoration Institute, uh, asymmetries. We talked about consciousness, which was like maybe the first breakout conversation that we had that was really authentic to Will and I. Um, thank you guys so much for listening to The Art of Move. If you have a topic that you want us to cover, go send us a message on Instagram, I am at the art, uh, I am at the body moves and Will is at the art of move. Um, go follow us there. Thank you so much for listening guys. And we'll catch you on the next episode. We got a great lineup of guests all throughout February and you can see them live on nofilter.net. We'll see you next time. Have a good one guys. Let movement be your medicine.